So I'm joining you from my neck of the woods from the Sydenham River because we're reading today a psalm that takes place by the rivers of Babylon. And I just thought it would set the stage for uh, part of what we're seeing and experiencing in the psalm. Today's Psalm 137. If you remember uh, a couple weeks ago, I talked about Walter Brueggemann as uh, this author who had written about the Psalms. He writes a lot about the Old Testament. And back 20, 30 years ago, he would have written a book um, about the Psalms describing three types of Psalms, Psalms of orientation. We would have heard a Psalm of orientation this past week, Psalm 23, which orients us around a characteristic of God, the Lord is my shepherd. And shout out to, uh, to Melody who uh, preached a good word. And isn't it fantastic that we have uh, such a talented uh, group of, of people who are able to, to speak and, and preach the word. Uh, thank you, Melody, for, for that gift. And then we have Psalms of disorientation. These are Psalms uh, that speak into when things don't make sense, when there's injustice, when there's lament, when uh, the psalmist is feeling out of sorts. And then we have Psalms of new orientation, uh, which we would have seen a couple of weeks ago in Psalm 85 of moving from an old way of thinking to a new way of thinking. Today, Psalm 37 is a Psalm of disorientation. And it goes like this. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. There we hung up our lyres on the poplar trees, for our captors there asked us for songs and our tormentors for rejoicing. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem as my greatest joy. Now, this is where the ugliness of this psalm of disorientation really hits, and it hits hard. And so this is your, your warning of um, graphic violence in this psalm. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites said that day at Jerusalem. Destroy it. Destroy it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who pays you back what you have done to us. Happy is he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. We should pause here and pray. God, we, we come to a difficult text like this, a, a psalm of disorientation that maybe catches us off guard. Maybe the rawness and the vulnerability of it it's just too much. And so we ask that you would help us with fresh eyes to see and make sense of what we're reading, what we're seeing here in this, in this psalm. Help us uh, to, to just uh, be able to approach it with... Um, with a realization that in the Psalms, we encounter a whole host of emotions and raw uh, experiences. And, uh, and these are valid too. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we need to start at the end, at this, this verse, at the end of the Psalm, at possibly one of the ugliest verses in all of Scripture. If the Psalms are poetry and prayer, 
And then we must approach them with the realization that they are bursting with raw emotion. In, in particular, psalms of disorientation describe a season of suffering, of alienation, of hurt, and of death. At such times, we and the psalmist vent our pain in rage, self-pity, resentment, and yes, even hatred. Here in this last verse in the psalm, we see such a striking call for vengeance. Most of our English translations either use the word happy is the one or blessed is the one. With the use of the word blessed, the psalmist would appear to be calling for divine retribution. Uh, their prayer is that God would bless those who take vengeance on those who have brought harm to them. Vengeance revenge. Perhaps we've wrestled with this kind of emotional response before, when we've been met with pain or suffering or loss. For this particular psalm, we might ask, well, where is this coming from? Where is this, this vengeance impulse stemming from? What's its root? And for that, we must turn back to the beginning, the opening verses of this psalm, by the rivers of Babylon. It's a pretty clear picture that's painted for us. The psalmist and his community are in Babylonian exile. They've been defeated and conquered and taken to live in Babylon. The goal, the goal is to assimilate these people into the workforce and into the culture of Babylon. And yet they are still underdogs, a kind of prisoner subjugated to their oppressors. The Psalmist paints the scene for us. They're in Babylon, but they're mentally elsewhere. They're longing for home, dreaming for being home. The, uh, the story we're reading right now with my, uh, with, I'm reading to my kids is The Hobbit. And thankfully some of the uh, View Elevation folks have lent me your copies of The Hobbit. I actually have a few, um, few different types. And we have been reading this story, which has just been great. I've read Lord of the Rings as, uh, as an adult, but I've actually never read The Hobbit. So I'm reading it along with my kids. And all through this sort of tumultuous journey of Bilbo Baggins, uh, we read anytime there's discomfort, that Bilbo longs for his hobbit hole and all the comforts for the food, for uh, a nice comfortable bed, for the, the comforts of home. And we see this same sort of idea here in the psalm. Uh, the psalmist is dreaming of home and has left them, it's left them feeling defeated. They've hung up their lyres, they've given up their songs, they're unsure what to do now. And yet their oppressors demand a song. Another, another Tolkien reference, I think of uh, in Lord of the Rings, in, in the third uh, book or movie, Return of the King, we have one of the, the hobbits, uh, Pippin, who goes and he, he's serving Denethor's court. And uh, Denethor asks him, uh, who's, who's the, the steward of Gondor, if he can sing any songs. He says, come, sing me a song. And, and Pippin then has to stand there and sing this, this meek and humble and sad song uh, before Denethor, who's eating. And it's this really striking scene, uh, sort of just puts us um, uh, on, on edge. It's, it's very grim. And here we have uh, the same sort of thing. These, these, uh, there are oppressors of the psalmist are singing, sing, sing, are saying, sing us one of those songs of Zion, one of those songs of Jerusalem. And the, the question they ask is, how can we sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? In our other English translations, foreign soil is sometimes strange land, a, a alien place. The psalmist is remarking that everything feels different here, off here. Everything has changed for us. 
we might be feeling a little bit of that. I remember the early pandemic sentiment of getting back to normal. And there were always other voices who suggested we'd never get back, that we'd, we'd need to embrace some kind of new normal coming out of this pandemic. And even now we find ourselves, and most especially the church, is in a strange land, a place in between, a liminal space. The question of the psalmist is one that we too can wrestle with. How do we sing the Lord's song? How do we do this thing called church when we're in this strange place that we find ourselves in? Uh, a little while ago, I encountered an article in Christianity Today called Rise of the Ums. And in it, the article would have drawn on, on previous categories we would use, the, the nuns and the duns. Uh, the nuns would have been people who, who had no or limited experience or upbringing with religion or Christianity in the church. And so they would be the nun, uh, no faith, um, no encounter, no experience. And then the dun would be people who had a negative experience with an upbringing uh, or upbringing in the church, and they would be done with the church. And these would have been two sort of significant demographics within Canada that we would be seeing in churches as people were leaving the church or people were not finding their way into the church. Well, in the rise of the ums, we have a new category, the ums. Who are the ums? We read in the, in the article, ums are a different category altogether. And the ones I've spoken with share several common character, characteristics. They are fond of the local church and were active members in the past. They take Jesus seriously and want to belong to a local congregation. They are not bitter or cynical. In fact, if anything, ums are uncomfortable with not being committed to a church body. As a result, there is a gap between their desire and their situation. They are ums because they are uncertain and hesitant about how to re-engage with the church. The article goes on to characterize them in four ways, uh, four ways that are these overarching struggles within the church right now. Uh, they are disoriented. These past two years have done a number on individuals and families. There's been so much change that people, even organizations, have struggled, struggled to do much longer term planning. And we find ourselves living day to day or week to week which can become this confusing and exhausting slog. They're demotivated. The church in the West is in shambles. There are abuses of power. There are scandals. The complicity of the church in creating white spaces and perpetuating uh, white supremacy. These all give pause for ums to question their connection to this thing called church. They're discouraged, whether it's uh, polarization or adrenal fatigue or ongoing mental health challenges. Uh, folks are feeling the weight of these past two years. We've been operating in just another week, just another month for way too long. And it's left people feeling worn out and discouraged. And finally, they're disembodied. This one is perhaps the biggest source of decline in the church. As much as people have appreciated efforts to keep the church in digital spaces, uh, for, for many, this has led to the questioning of the purpose of the church. Two, t two key demographics uh, have tuned out during the height of the pandemic, the 20-somethings and the young families. The digital expressions of church have left many feeling like these are disingenuous. And for people with young families, digital expressions of church were really hard to be present to. How do we be present when we're also trying to parent in these spaces and, and screen time? And what does this look like? And so these demographics largely tuned out and some have come back and some just haven't. All of this has amounted to the ums, 
questioning the cornerstone of what it means to be the church today, the Sunday service. They're questioning it. Alan Hirsch, uh, who's a missiologist and author, he's an Australian guy living in California. He uses this, he used this metaphor back in the early pandemic about chess. And he says, uh, one day somebody sat him down and said, if you really want to learn how to play chess, Alan, you need to take out your queen, remove it from the board. And then your opponent, they're going to keep their queen and they're going to beat you. They're going to, they're going to beat you for a really long time. But what's going to happen is you're going to learn how to use the other pieces on the board, the other pieces, because the queen is the best piece. And uh, young rookie players, amateur players over rely on their queen. And then when you've gotten good enough that you can play without the queen, then put your queen back in. And at that point, you've learned how to, build, how to play chess in a more dynamic fashion without just relying on this singular function. And for, for the church, especially in the early pandemic, the queen that was taken off the board was the Sunday service. Now, many churches... We simply learn how to use the queen in new ways, a different strategy of deploying the queen. We change up the tactics, the ums, but the ums have taken notice. Uh, they've, uh, this digital manifestation of Sunday services the, is, has not really been a full replacement. And it looks the same, it smells the same, so it's probably the same. And it maybe feels empty for these folks. And so when asked if they'll jump back in to volunteering on this team or serving in that ministry, they say, um... Let me think about it. Or, um, let me get back to you. Or, um, I need a little bit more time. Or, um, I'm not sure if I'm ready for that yet. On the flip side, the ums are drawn to embodied practices like service and learning, Sundays and shared meals. We've seen and heard a desire for more service and learning Sundays, more neighbors groups engagement and more embodied practices. In his book, uh, Borderland Churches, uh, Canadian author, pastor, and professor Gary Nelson, uh, former president of Tyndale, um, he reflects on the church's calling as one called into the borderlands, the borderlands. In downtown Windsor, we, we used this language of borderlands and mountaintops in a, in a way of, of a rhythm of gathering and sending. The gathering part makes sense to us. When we think of the word church, we immediately think of bricks and mortar locations where people gather or Sunday services or singing and sermons. We probably don't think about the sending part in the same vein. That's probably someone else's responsibility, someone else's area of expertise or calling. Or maybe you feel, I'm not a missionary. That's not me. The whole history of Israel was fraught with this kind of thinking. The idea of mountaintops comes from the ways people look for the spiritual experience, the spiritual goods and services, the worship songs that I connect with, the sermon that, that speaks to me, the ways in which I am fed by this Sunday experience. The temple was on a mountain. And it was the place of highest good for the Jewish people, Mount Zion, the hill of the Lord. That's why we love retreats and conferences and really gifted speakers and really talented worship artists. And there's nothing wrong with the mountaintops. They are good. They are really good and we need them. But a short-sighted understanding of church is when we only define church by its mountaintop experiences. When we forget the borderlands, when we forget our calling to be uh, good news in the borderlands. So we look to Jesus. Another author, Mark Buchanan, says this very simply and profoundly. The Pharisees had an ethic of avoidance and Jesus had an ethic of involvement. We might switch out the word involvement for engagement. 
For the Pharisees, the mountaintops were it, and they functioned as gatekeepers for these mountaintops. For Jesus, he had his mountaintop getaways with his father, and they were vital. And he had his times of prayer and connectedness to his 12 friends and followers in his community, and they were important. And he had his debriefs with the 72, and they too were vital. But for Jesus, most of his ministry was spent in the borderlands as a sent one. He embodied love and peace and hope and joy and justice and healing and restoration in the borderlands. He was engaged. He was involved. If we turn back to Psalm 137, we see that the psalmist is missing something. What is it again? Oh, it's Zion. It's Jerusalem. It's the temple. It's the mountaintop. For some of us, we wanted nothing more than to get home to in-person Sunday services. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. The mountaintops are good and important. But for others, when we came back, something felt off or missing or out of place. Or do I belong here? There's this story in Ezra 3 about the rebuilding of the temple. And the people have come out of Babylonian uh, exile and they're heading home to rebuild Jerusalem and its temple. And we read in Ezra 3 as they've rebuilt it. Then all the people gave a great shout, praising the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. But many of the older priests, Levites, and other leaders who had seen the first temple wept aloud when they saw the new temple's foundation. The others, however, were shouting for joy. The joyful shouting and weeping mingled together in a loud noise that could be heard far in the distance. For some, getting home meant everything. Celebration, shouts of joy, a sense of finally we're here. But for others, it just wasn't the same. It was never going to be the same. And they wept. So if you're feeling that today, if you're feeling like, um, that's valid. That's okay. We see you. We hear you. And even as a pastoral team, we've been asking these questions, wrestling with these realities, even carrying some of these same feelings ourselves. And that's okay. But we're also asking what God, by his spirit, wants to do about it. What God is calling us into. We're asking, how do we sing the Lord's song in a strange place? How do we do this thing called church when so much has changed? What's, uh, what's missing? What does faithfulness look like in this season? In closing, we might consider God's response to the psalmist's question. When the psalmist is feeling done with Babylon, with the borderlands, God offers these words in Jeremiah 29. He says, this is the message from God of the angel armies, Israel's God, to all the exiles I've taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and make yourselves at home. Put in gardens and eat what grows in that country. Marry and have children. And encourage your children to marry and have children so that you'll thrive in that country and not waste away. Make yourselves at home there and work for the country's welfare. Pray for Babylon's well-being. If things go well for Babylon, things will go well for you. Put differently, it reads, embrace the borderlands. Lean into the culture. Put down roots in your neighborhood. Get to know your neighbor. Plant gardens and share that food. Have block parties and barbecues and show up in the borderlands. Embody your faith. Get your hands dirty. Put your back into it. And maybe, just maybe, these mountaintops will feel meaningful again because they've been formed by our experiences in the borderlands.
Let's pray. God, we thank you for a psalm that puts us on our back foot, a psalm of disorientation that uh, leaves us maybe with more questions than answers, a psalm of disorientation that, that causes confusion, and that maybe in that confusion, we look to you, we look to your spirit, we lean on you, and that maybe in this time of, of disorientation, it leads to a time of discernment and vision and calling and where we're going together. And so we thank you for your word. Uh, may it speak profoundly in our lives this week. Amen.